Today is the 21st of February, 2017, and we're recording here at the Mass Inc. Codcast Studio on Beacon Hill in downtown Boston. This is episode number 38 of the Transit Matters Podcast, and our first episode recording at the Mass Inc. and Commonwealth Magazine Studio on Beacon Hill. Transit Matters educates and advocates for fast, frequent, reliable, and effective public transit in and around Boston. Our podcasts aim for an informed but accessible conversation about transportation policy, operations, and finance. With transportation being such a vital issue in Massachusetts, Transit Matters has recently teamed up with Commonwealth Magazine to create transportation-related podcasts. I'm your host, Josh Fairchild. I'm a co-founder and board member here at Transit Matters. I work as an attorney, but in my free time, I like to indulge my passion for improving communities through better development and infrastructure, specifically with regards to transit and transportation networks. And I'm your co-host, Jim LLWC. I was the former Secretary of Transportation in Massachusetts, and I am passionate about sustainable mobility. And uh, today on the podcast, we're joined by Chuck Marum, founder and executive director of Strong Towns, an organization that has been generating attention for its transportation and infrastructure advocacy that run counter to accepted common sense in American transportation policy. I'll let Chuck finish with his own introduction at this point. Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm I'm uh, I'm with Strong Towns, and we are a nonprofit media organization sharing a message of change. I uh, started blogging back in 2008, and started to to, to write about uh, the projects that I saw in my area. I'm I'm an engineer, and I'm a, a land use planner, and I started to talk about the finance and why some of these projects didn't make sense. And uh, my writing kind of took off and people started uh, following us all over the country and it has grown exponentially ever since. We uh, now reach a million people a year and uh, are real excited about sharing our message and, and I appreciate the opportunity to be here with you guys. Well, and thank you for coming on the podcast. Um, we, um, um, I know that this, Oftentimes we focus on more regional and local transportation issues and get into a little bit more of the weeds about operations and things like that. And this conversation is a little bit more uh, abstract or meta about how are we going about creating our transportation uh, infrastructure and networks. And uh, we hope that this will be uh, part one of at least a two-part um, series talking to um, national um, experts or um, yeah, experts or advocates um, for transportation policy. Um, so, Chuck, thanks for coming on the show. Um, you know, one of the, um, I think you gave a little bit of an explanation about Strong Towns there and, and your mission. Um, one of the things that, that made me think this might be a fun conversation to have is that uh, despite all of the current, um, I guess, vitriol or concern about national politics, one of the, the points of light that people are pointing to is saying, well, you know, maybe transportation infrastructure uh, and a new transportation bill and financing or funding out of Washington, D.C. is something we can all get behind and agree on, the president, um, both houses of Congress, as well as both parties. And uh, Chuck, your organization uh, has, has kind of made a splash in the last several weeks by taking a very opposite approach to um, the billion-dollar infrastructure surge that we're hearing about. Would you tell us a little bit about um, your, your perspective on that? Yeah, it's interesting because we it is the one thing where we have kind of a bipartisan consensus, if you'd call it that, in Washington, D.C. Everybody, you know, everybody at every level of government thinks we need to be spending more on infrastructure. And there's a there's a good reason for that. Things are falling apart. 
things are not being well maintained. Uh, cities everywhere have uh, these reports that say, you know, we have millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars of infrastructure to maintain, and we only have tiny budgets to do it. Uh, and so, yeah, the idea of spending more money, everybody kind of stands up and says, yes, yes, let's have the federal government do that. Where we differ, and I think where we come from a different place, is that we're really asking a different set of questions. And it starts with, you know, why, why don't we have the money to maintain this stuff? You know, if, if uh, we just had the, the dam out in California, you know, if this spillway infrastructure is so important because, you know, hundreds of thousands of people live downstream and are going to be impacted by it. And we've got to have the water for a reservoir because people drink it and there's a huge water demand in California and we need the electricity. If all those things are so important, why can't we spend the $100,000 on maintenance? You know, why is that not a priority? If, if all these things are so critical, why don't we have the money to do them? Why, why are they becoming a priority at the local level? And what we have found... Well, Chuck, isn't part of the answer that, that the, at the local level, people are even more constrained financially, that well, uh, a lot yes. of responsibilities have devolved from the top to the lower tiers of government? And I think that's the very nature of the, of the problem. Um, a lot of the infrastructure that we see that has been built in this great expansion uh, post-World War II uh, was was built and and paid for largely by the federal government, by the state government, and by uh, in the last couple decades, uh, Wall Street kind of financial uh, stuff. So developer comes in, uh, you know, puts in the sewer and water, pays for it, uh, you know, sells all those properties. The people take them o- over and pay their mortgages now, and you know, all of that stuff has really grown the economy. As part of those transactions, though, what the city agrees is that the city says, you know, we'll take over the long-term responsibility of serving and maintaining this stuff. We, we agree that when it breaks, we'll fix it. And that's a really easy mm-hmm. promise to make when it's brand new and the liability is not going to come due for 20, 30 plus years. And so what we've seen is this rapid, rapid expansion in our cities, a rapid expansion in our transportation system. And, uh, you know, all these liabilities now starting to come due from promises we made a generation or two ago. And that's the fundamental problem. The fundamental problem is that when people don't pay for it at the local level, when, uh, you know, we essentially can just build and have the positive impacts of the growth today, but the liabilities are out a generation from now, it induces us to do a lot of really crazy projects and not make very good use of our infrastructure. As an engineer, I was seeing over and over again how you know we were building stuff and as cities taking over the maintenance responsibility of things, where over the life cycle of that infrastructure, there was no chance of us recouping the cost. Uh, there was no chance that we were going to recoup enough money to actually make good on those promises. But you know that was going to be someone else's problem in the future. Basically, our infrastructure approach has bankrupted our cities, giving them more liabilities than they have the possibility to, uh, to meet. And th- that's where our concern lies. You know, Chuck, I, I, I really buy into that in a lot of ways. One of the things that concerns me is, you know, you spend a lot of time talking about um, uh, suburban-style road networks or road arterials um, that won't pay for themselves or cul-de-sac type of uh, neighborhoods where, you know, they, re- they require 
lots of investment in schools and fire stations and, and sewer and water and things like that that cannot amortize itself with the tax base. Um, but I also get really concerned about what about the really good projects that get federal um, investment. So for example, in Boston, our, our, orange, our orange line, our subway line that goes through the southwest and the north of the city, it was one of the first subway lines that was funded when they said you can take some of the gas tax and use it for transit instead of uh, for a new highway. And that's exactly what it did. It took what was supposed to be another highway cutting through the city and instead they created the subway line. Um, but you know that happened in the 70s and uh, we're having, basically the train cars haven't been replaced since then. And um, you know there hasn't been enough money to replace, maintain, improve, and expand that system even though it gets heavy use. So what do you think is happening with us not being able to even you know, do, pay for those systems that are vitally important and that probably should pencil out? I think there's a couple of things there to unpack. The, the first one is that, of course, the cost of doing, if we, would, if we would agree that that was a good transit project, the cost of doing a, a good transit project is always, you know, 10 times that in like really bad highway infrastructure. So, you know, to me, I, I've, I've argued for a long time that I, I don't think the trade-off is worth it. And really, when we look at transit projects across the country that are really successful, they're largely things that could be done at the local level, particularly if we didn't have the drag of, you know, funneling money through Washington, D.C. and then having it go to these really unproductive highway projects. But I think more importantly is this, you know, when... When we tend to fund transit projects, and I, I think you can look at the 1970s versions of these, a lot of which the plans were made in the 1970s, and here, like in Minnesota, where I'm from, we're still building that network today. I mean, that's still our plan, the plan that was developed in the 1970s. It was largely based around the, the idea that we were going to be a nation of commuters, that we would uh, you know, run these transit lines out to the suburbs, and then we would get people to either drive or, you know, maybe take a, a bus or something uh, to the transit stop and then get in and commute in. And what that completely overlooks or completely skips by is the real value added component of what a good transit investment is. Good transit increases property values. Uh, the property values are really what should be used to pay for the capital costs of that transit. And, uh, you know, the, the, the way you pay for the O&M then is through fares. Right now, uh, largely when we build transit, uh, we do it with huge subsidies, and then we put the burden, in a sense, of paying for large capital costs on the fare box. And it's simply not enough to not only you know, pay off those capital costs, but then also you know, put money away to maintain and service and keep things in good operating condition. We're not building the wealth that we need to when we make these investments. So what's your solution to the fare box? What's the alternative that would help pay for the transit costs? Well, I, I think if we look at, you know, we can look around the world uh, or we can look back in our own history at the way transit was done before we had this suburban commuter mindset. You know, the, the, across this country, my little town here in central Minnesota was built by the railroad. Uh, the railroads were given the land by the federal government, which, of course, you know, acquired it by force. Uh, but they were given the land. There's no long-term maintenance costs for giving someone land. So the federal government essentially had no you know, long-term obligations once they did that transaction. 
the railroads then went out and essentially built these cities. And they built little towns like mine, and they you know, sold the land off to speculators and what have you. And they used that profit, that money, to pay for the construction of the railroad. Uh, the railroad companies were essentially developers first and railroad operators second. And then over time, uh, they paid for the ongoing maintenance and repair of those railroads from the fare box and from you know, the, the fees that they could charge people to use the line. I think what we have missed out on in this country, and I think if we want to make transit kind of front and center in our urban conversation, uh, we have to start tying it back in again to the, the value creation component. And I'll, I'll give an example of this because this is, you know, very common in Asian countries where they're doing high speed rail. And, and a lot of investments that we envy here in this country are largely paid for through value capture. I think we can envision it as Americans if we think about a highway interchange. Right now, the, when we build a highway interchange, it's largely with federal dollars. The federal government will go in and, uh, you know, acquire the land needed for the right of way, yeah. put in the interchange, and then... Uh, Lo and behold, uh, all of these uh, property owners around this are all of a sudden very wealthy. Uh, all of a sudden, they have millions of dollars of value uh, just created for them by someone else. In a more rational system, you would either have them build the interchange themselves, or I think in our system today, what you would wind up doing is having uh, the government go in and not only acquire the land for the interchange, but actually the land that would be needed for the development too. And the value added from that would become the mechanism you'd use to pay for that interchange. We're not interested in doing that because it, it's harder and uh, it, it means less growth uh, in terms of the infrastructure we build. And so we, you know, we, we largely shun those kind of efforts. But if we actually wanted it to pay for itself and actually wanted it to work long-term financially, that's the kind of thing we would do. You know, Chuck, um, to, push back, to push back a little bit, um, you know, so here in, here in Boston, um, we were sort of the site of the original streetcar suburbs, and they did develop, I used to live in Brookline, um, which is just a few miles outside of downtown Boston, and it did develop exactly as you were talking about, where a developer bought a bunch of land, and what was the suburb of them, it's only four miles from, from down, from the, the center of Boston, and, and it worked really well for a while, um, but then two things have happened. One is that you had a whole lot of small uh, developers, and well, I guess they were small for our standards today, but you had a whole bunch of developers doing the same thing and doing their own transit lines, and then they would spin off these, you know, transit companies, these streetcar companies, and then, you know, maybe, maybe 25, 30 years in, um, the... They had gotten, they had made all their money off the real estate, and they, they weren't actually, you know, the transit was a loss leader, right? So then there was a consolidation, there were successive, successive consolidations, and then finally you had municipalities and then the state taking over um, these uh, transit operations because they recognized it was in the public good to operate them, but they were not uh, operating at a profit, so there weren't private um, people wanting to operate them. On the land side, um, it's sort of like the genie's out of the bottle on that. How do we, how do we get it back if the value has already increased a hundredfold? How do we now insert ourselves back into that process to capture that value for where there's already lines operating, but they do need uh, maintaining, upgrading, and perhaps expansion? Yeah, and I think that those are fair questions in today's context. Um, you know, when we step back and look at some of the side effects of post-World War II development, what we see is that the way we go about building places over time has changed. 
So I, I don't think you use the word built out, but you, you know, you said we've already captured the value. We've already done it. And that kind of implies that like, under, we're cur- done under current zoning regime, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like we're done growing, you know, we've, we've, we've built it. Now it's just a matter of like collectively pooling our dollars to maintain it. And I, I get that. I mean, there's a certain logic to that, uh, but it's premised on the notion that, you know, we're done, like we're done. We built it. We're done. Um, and really, when you study cities historically, uh, there's no city that's ever been done, um, you know, prior to, uh, you know, post-World War II America, where we build things to a finished state. Uh, at every other time through recorded history, cities are built slowly and incrementally over time on this kind of continuum of improvement. So you can look at, you know, a small little collection of, of pop-up buildings on one end of the spectrum and Manhattan on the other end, and even Manhattan is continuing to you know, grow incrementally up over time, uh, you could say, well, we're not Manhattan yet, so obviously we have room yet to grow. Uh, that is um, you know, a, a conversation that was just you know, part of the natural way of doing things 100 years ago, 200 years ago plus. Uh, today, we've, we've lost that. We actually look at zoning and uh, the, the, the taxation approach we have as, in a sense, uh, protecting our right to not have anything change. And what I'm putting forward is that uh, these systems don't work over the long term. They fail. They actually don't. They aren't able to renew themselves. They aren't able to sustain themselves financially if there's no incremental growth mechanism involved. You, you wind up with the situation that you described where, okay, uh, we're going to, con- you know, we've got two companies. We've got a development company and a transit company. Uh, the transit company is, is going to consolidate with the other one because we're not making the money we should. And then, you know, bam, bam, bam. And pretty soon the government's running it. Um, those are all essentially, you know, feedback mechanisms along the way saying like, hey, something has to change. This isn't working. And ultimately you get to the government, which is, you know, kind of the anti-feedback mechanism. Uh, and, and that's where we're at today. I think to get back to a healthy approach, we actually need to dig into the zoning and say, okay, how do we start to change our development approach in these areas so that they can become wealth producing and they can grow incrementally and they can, in a sense, uh, help point the way to where our great transit investments should be in, you know, in 2017 and beyond. If I could interpret for a second. So when you're saying feedback mechanisms or feedback loops, I think what you're saying is, when you at the local level experience the pain of not having the money to maintain, upgrade, or expand the transportation network that you need, then that's a, that's, that, that financial pain is the feedback. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. And if we go back to those early trans, you know, the, the, uh, the, the commuter transit lines that you were talking about, you know, the streetcars and what have you, uh, there was a point where those companies were saying like, hey, we, we can't run these profitably. And, I mean, the answer then would have been one of two things. It would have been either uh, you're going to have to raise fares so that you can. Uh, you're going to go out of business and someone else is going to, you know, take that over and, and find a way to operate it profitably. Or, you know, you're going to have to create more wealth in that neighborhood. Uh, things are going to have to grow and improve so that people can, you know, there, there'll be either more people riding or, uh, you know, more capital available uh, to, to fill those gaps. Instead, what we did is we said, well, let's make the system bigger and uh, essentially hide that feedback for now 
And uh, ultimately, we got it you know, to where it's the government, and now we'll pay through it through sales tax or general fund or what have you. And you've lost the connection between uh, the people paying for it and the actual solvency of the system. So I'm going to ask you a two-part follow-up on that. So it, it sounds like you, you, met, you mentioned value capture several times. Um, you know, here in Massachusetts, we don't have the ability at the local, at the most local levels, to opt in to uh, certain types of taxes that are that are not already, the powers are not already given to us by the legislature. So there's a movement, and there's um, there are legislative bills pending every session uh, for. Um, local options so that local municipalities can vote on these types of things and for value capture which is not something that we currently do very well um, the transportation agency is operated at the state level uh, so we run into politics um, where even though we're not a large state geographically there's an east-west divide and there's an urban-rural divide that makes it difficult to get the funding that the people in the metro area want for transit so I guess the two parts are is if value capture is what you're mostly focusing on how do you imagine that happening at the local level? Do you have good examples? And secondly, are there other um, are there other forms of funding? So you know, we see states and cities doing sales taxes um, and uh, value capture and some other funding mechanisms. I'm drawing a blank right now, but but we see a variety of th you know bonding. I guess bonding is the other thing that we see a lot of and TIFs. What what do you, are there other mechanisms that you would also embrace? Um, and, and if so, how do you see these things working uh, in a concrete example? Yeah, I, I think that it's important to understand what has happened uh, with, our, with our state and local finance over the last 50 years. Uh, if, if we go back in time in Massachusetts, what you had were a bunch of cities, each of which would have their own taxes and fees and their own kind of structure to, to financing their places. And so when things did become, in a sense, communal, uh, the tax structure that they had there was often uh, kind of you know, molded to work for that community. If you had a, a rural farm community, uh, it was going to have a very different tax structure than an urban manufacturing community. Uh, what we've done over the last you know, two generations in the, you know, under the guise of efficiency and, and you know, ease of, of uh, you know, the, the ease of administration, is we've said, no, we're, we're going to have essentially one tax policy. It's going to be set by the state, and the state will tell you what to do as local governments. Um, this works really, really well if you're Walmart uh, or if you're McDonald's, because if you're McDonald's in you know 1950s Massachusetts, what you have to do is you have to go around to every single town, figure out what their unique set of tax structures are, uh, work to adapt to that, and you know it's, it's messy and it's complicated. Um, now, you just go to Massachusetts, and you're like, okay, well, here's what it is, and I deal with the state, and I go, and, and the local government has no say in it. I actually think we need to invert that. I think we need to, you know, 180 degree change that, where the state has very few kind of taxes that they do, um, and they're very um, kind of coarse in their implementation. Uh, they're not, you know, you, you don't have a ton of rules and regulations, what have you. It's, it's a pretty simple approach. And at the local level, we need to be able to customize our tax approach, particularly during this kind of transition period where we're trying to figure out, you know, how do we make our cities solvent again? How do we help them uh, grow and prosper in a way where they can actually pay for the stuff that they're building? Uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, not having that capacity is a, a huge burden for cities because we wind up 
with things like the sales tax. Uh, and we wind up with things like, you know, the property tax, which are very, very indirect. And it pushes us to do things like tax increment subsidies, uh, where, you know, that's kind of our form of value capture today in this country, where we'll give you the subsidy back uh, if you create value in a place. And we'll kind of use that to pay for infrastructure or other things. And it's such a kind of distorted, uh, unhealthy mechanism uh, that, you know, you, we really have seen a, a terrible backlash against it. So I, I don't have, I mean, you, you asked me for concrete examples of, of ways we can do this. And I'm going to tell you that they, they don't exist today. Uh, we don't have them in our arsenal, in our toolbox. And so, you know, from the pragmatic, like transit advocate, you've got to work within the system that you've got. Uh, for me, I'm looking at it saying, uh, we need to give cities more tools, more flexibility, uh, more uh, options so that they can start to figure some of this stuff out and figure out how it's going to work in a 21st century. I heard you, um, I, I've read some of your, your work before and, and you've you know, kind of said, I don't want to say derogatory things, but you've said negative things about um, sales tax, um, you know, using sales tax, uh, like say, I used to live in Oklahoma City and they, they would have like a penny sales tax maybe it's a couple pennies, I don't remember, and then they would use that revenue to bond against um, to do successive, I think, five or ten year um, maps projects, they called them there, which were you know infrastructure projects uh, around the city, and you had kind of said some negative things about that, and I've never quite understood that, but you know, there's that, and there's also, I was drawing a blank earlier, but there's, you know, um, uh, gas tax, which you haven't mentioned here, there's VMT, and there's congestion charges, and um, like, are those other tools that should be in, in the toolbox? Are there ways that they could be deployed in a way that you think offer a better feedback mechanism than what you've seen? I think it's really important, particularly when we're talking about sales tax or, or gas tax, to understand that the, the degree of separation between the people who pay for it and then what those people expect and, and require and demand. Um, I have been very critical of the sales tax, largely because the sales tax is like a big slush fund. It's pretty easy to raise a lot of money really quick. Uh, people don't really recognize that they're paying for it. And if you're like me, where you obsess over the, the solvency of our cities, a solvency of our places, you know, are we generating enough wealth and feedback uh, to actually maintain the stuff that we're building? Uh, the sales tax gives you none of that. It, it is so separated from... Uh, you know, the, the source of, of the income from how you're spending it, that it's, it's really impossible to get any good feedback. Everybody who pays the gas tax believes that the gas tax should pay for or does pay for, uh, you know, everything that they're using. When the reality is, is the gas tax pays for only a tiny portion of our transportation system, and most of it comes from other places. Uh, I think if, if we actually paid a gas tax that was equivalent to what our demand was, not only would our tax be a lot higher, but our demands would be a lot lower in a sense. So, yeah, I'm, I, I think that those are mechanisms uh, that you know, local governments can use. Uh, I think they should be in the toolbox, but they're very indirect. And I think in particular, you know, when I've talked about the, the sales tax, I've made it a point to say... You know, if you're a city running the sales tax, your you know, optimum person is, uh, is not a residence. Uh, they're people who live outside the city, who come in and shop, and then have absolutely no service demand on you. And your optimum city is a city of 
you know, complete Walmarts and retail establishments that generate the most sales tax uh, with, you know, the least amount of people. And, you know, your optimum family is a family that moves to town and spends themselves into oblivion. And then when they're broke and bankrupt, moves out and makes way for someone else who would. And so what it does is it creates a system that pits what is good for the local government against what is good for the community, simply from a revenue standpoint. And from, for that, I think it's very distorting. I'll ask you uh, another question, and then we'll probably be uh, want to uh, you know, say our goodbyes for, the, for this podcast. Um, the, the, the other question I wanted to ask about is, um, you know, so recently in Massachusetts, they tried to um, uh, do uh, inflation, they tried to tie the gas tax to inflation, so that they, they did a, a small increase, it was half of what the governor had asked for, uh, this is back in 2013, and then they tried to tie it to inflation. So at least it would keep up with um, where it was at that point. And then that was later voted down by a ballot initiative, a statewide ballot initiative. And um, shortly after that, um, there was some polling done that showed that the majority of uh, residents in the greater Boston area agreed that um, highway expansion was not a viable option, that transit uh, was the answer to solving congestion, uh, and that transportation, you know, that the transit system needed more funding, but there was also majority agreement that they didn't want any new taxes to pay for it, and that they didn't want the gas tax to go up. Is it just that we're not used to paying for what what we use? Is that the how do we get used to paying the cost of our transit if we're not paying it now? I don't think any of this should surprise anybody. I mean, this is human nature, right? You know, this is not like a Republican or a Democrat flaw. This is just a, a human flaw. If I can get something and not pay for it, that that's a great thing. Like, I will do that. That's very good. Um, if I have to pay for it, then I have to balance it against other things. And then, I'm, I, you know, I may or I may not like it. And I think this is the this is the trap that transit advocates and really transportation advocates get in in general. They'll, they'll say, like, look, there's broad support for this. Um, and people really want this stuff. And then they'll, they'll try to make a case for how we should get, you know, more money to do it because people really want it. Uh, but then when you get to the point where and there have been instances where, you know, we've asked people to pay for things directly, like, OK, uh, you know, do you want to pay a toll to cross this bridge? No, I, I don't want to pay a toll to cross the bridge. Um, well, if we don't pay the toll, we're not going to build the bridge. And they say, well, don't build the bridge. I'm not going to do it. And so what you what you see is that in the abstract, people really want this stuff, but they want other people to pay for it. And, you know, it, it, that's just a hu that's a human failing. That's a human quality. What I obsess about and what I kind of fear is that, you know, when we can convince people to spend a little bit more money and it goes into these big funds and then we go through our processes to kind of allocate that money because we're not doing it in a way that actually gives us any feedback. We're making really poor investment decisions. We spend a lot of money on, you know, road widenings in the middle of nowhere. We build cul-de-sacs. We put in interchanges. I, you know, we do rail projects to park and rides. And, you know, we do things like that that really are very poor investments. If we actually had a little bit more skin in the game, in a sense, at the local level, I think not only would we get a ton more transit projects, but they'd be really good transit projects. They'd be transit projects that really benefited people, ones that, you know, not only generated a lot of wealth, uh, but served, um, you know, served people and, and, and met actual demand on the ground. And that's that's what I'm obsessive about. Do we need more money uh, for infrastructure? Yeah, yes. 
Do we need more money for transit? Absolutely. Uh, I think we need to talk about the way we collect that money and how that relates to the projects that we actually fund and build before we pour a bunch more, uh, you know, a, a bunch more gas on this fire. Well, Chuck, I want to thank you for um, a lot of ideas to think about here that are a little counter to what we're usually talking about when we think about uh, local and national transportation uh, policy and, and funding. Um, so thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we we uh, we run a little bit counter to things, but it's uh, you know it's uh, a, a good part of the narrative that I think we need to stop and and discuss. So I appreciate you giving me the opportunity. Well, what we could use is a little more creative thinking, and I think the here in Massachusetts, one of the things we're going to be exploring hopefully this year is whether to begin devolving some more powers uh, from the state to municipalities. And, and this conversation is, uh, is a sort of prelude to, to that longer discussion we're going to be having. Well, if you're, an, if you're an urban city and you want to increase your revenue without, uh, you know, without raising taxes uh, on transportation infrastructure, uh, devolve the decision-making down to the local level. You know, largely in this country, uh, transportation funding goes from urban areas to rural areas. Uh, rural areas are subsidized. Uh, you know, uh, for every dollar they send in, they get a dollar thirty, a dollar forty back. Urban areas, it, it's the opposite way. It's eighty cents, seventy-five cents on the dollar. Um, I, I think mm -hmm. that that needs to change, not from an equity standpoint, but just from like you know, a a uh, what's a good investment. You know, I, I live in a rural area, and we waste more infrastructure money than uh, than you would believe. It's incredible. <laughs>